a Podcast One production. This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Rob Carlton is a multi-talented entertainer, writer and producer. A professional actor since 14, his numerous accolades include winning Tropfest in 2006 with his film Carmichael and Shane, a film he wrote, directed, produced and starred in, and his portrayal of Kerry Packer in Paper Giants won him a Logie in 2011, a role he then reprised two years later. A champion debater and public speaker, Rob is one of Australia's most in-demand MCs, having hosted hundreds of high-profile events over the last 25 years. So, Rob, how did you find the process of choosing your five? Enjoyable, pain in the arse? Enjoyable. You know, each, I mean, the different angles you can take on any one thing. You know, the song, you could choose a hundred songs. What, what do you want to talk about? So as always, and more than ever over these last few months with the pandemic, um, it offered me another o- opportunity to reflect um, on different stages of my life, different insights I've gained. Um, and I think, you know, to carve out little bits of the day for that sort of thinking is a treasure. Yeah. Well, listen, we, we traditionally start with the film. Uh, there are two films and two films only that have been chosen twice. One is Star Wars. Nothing wrong with that. One is with Nell and I. Ah, someone holy, is... holy, mate. One of my all-time yeah. favourites. And you, you angel, have chosen with Nell and I. Yep. Tell us why. I first saw with Nell and I when I was uh, an undergraduate at Sydney University. And it was one of those films that everyone shared, you know, and I think that if we go back to our minds, I, um, at that age, it was an extraordinary time. And, and, and every single undergraduate feels that this is about to happen. We're on the cusp of an extraordinary revolution. These amazing thinkers all around us understand that the dominant paradigm is a difficult thing and needs to be shaken and we need more equality. We need more <laughs> diversity. We need, all, and you think, oh my God, all these beautiful young people, we are about to change the world. And then of course, over the course of the next few years, people start reverting to type. They start reverting to family patterns. They start reverting to these history things. But there's something about with Nail and I and those two, as a young actor, because I was an actor since I was 14, um, but doing my studies, watching those two young actors, there was something so dangerously alive about watching those two guys. It was, it was the best of life. It was exhilarating, it was exciting, and it was terrifying. And to me, that the, the, the coming together of exhilarating and terrifying is something that I think fuels that notion that we're on the cusp of a revolution when we're in our undergrad years because we can exist in the space of exhilarating terror when we're between the ages of 19 and 22. But then when we start hitting middle age, our mid-20s, exhilaration and terror is not necessarily the fuel that keeps people sane. <laughs> uh, and so that's what I love about that film. It seemed to capture that moment where everything could go this way and that. And, of course, the outcome of the film 
it does go that way for one and That's it goes right. the other way for the other. It's an incredibly poignant film. And do you know it's all true? I didn't know that. It's, it, there is not one piece of fiction in that. It's Bruce Robinson who, mm. who directed it and wrote it. Mm. He is uh, I, mm. and with Nail is, I forget his name, is Vivian uh, Mackerel who died of, I mean, it didn't end well for him. Oh. He was left behind in the Camden flat mm. and he drank himself to death. It's yeah. all, what, even Uncle Monty is, is, is that right? Zeffirelli. It's all true. And, and so and I need to ask you, mate, looking at you, you've weathered well, oh. but drink plays a large part in that uh, sure. beautiful film. Uh, sure. What's been your history with My the, relationship with the with, golden nectar? With, with alcohol. Uh, interesting you should ask. So as a young fellow, oh, just quickly, you mentioned Monty and with Nail and I. Yeah. Mate, every time I see a cloud in the sky, I still lean back and say, oh, the sky does bruise and we shall be forced to camp. <laughs> Do you ever scream, scrubbers? <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the great lines. Oh, I rewatched it again the other day and I was waiting for that. There's that and get in the back of the van. Um, so anyway. We want the finest wines available to humanity. We want them here. We want them now. <laughs> um, so... The finest wines. So it's funny you should. Let's start there with my relationship with alcohol. I got very, very drunk when I was about 11 years old on white wine. Wow, that's early. Mum's cabinet. Yeah, 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 yeah. Can't drink white wine anymore. I got very, very drunk on red wine about six months later. Can't drink red wine anymore. <laughs> so I've never been able to drink wine. So as a result, in my youth, I loved beer and I loved spirits. I loved getting drunk and I loved f***ing while drinking. Um <laughs> And so, and I think that that can be a great thing. Now, I like to think that it was always done with a spirit of joy and joie de vivre, and it was, you know, it was that thing of like, this can be fun. So long as we're both having fun yeah. and it's consensual and it's joyous, then away we go. No problems at all. Then, and the timing is interesting, Nigel. <laughs> when I met my now wife, then girlfriend, I started getting headaches while drinking, right? drinking beer. So I thought, God damn it, this is terrible. I like drinking. It's fun. So I did everything I could to <laughs> stay on the booze, right? So I started brewing my own beer. Yep. I brewed my own ginger beer, all to no avail. I would get these headaches. And then I go, oh, bloody no. So then, I, so then beer. So now no wine, no beer. It's a lonely man that turns up in the first drop of the afternoon is a rum. <laughs> <laughs> but that's worse. So for every now, for, so for a few months a year, I was the guy at the wedding with a little hip flask of rum because I couldn't drink the wine, I couldn't drink the beer. So I have a little sip of that. Anyway, as a result of that, that starts. You either go hard, you either make a decision to go right. I've got a short time uh, here, <laughs> or it just slowly leaves your life. And so I haven't drunk alcohol since my since my late twenties. Uh, I mean, um, at, at all? No, nah, not really. I mean, but and it's not like. Uh, I'm a rec because obviously being an actor, people go, oh, aren't you brave? Well done, hey? <laughs> Stay with the program, man. <laughs> How many steps? Twelve. <laughs> it wasn't that. It just left my life. I have a theory based with zero scientific support that it was my subconscious saying, Rob, you've met an amazing woman here. Given that you like to drink and f it might be best if you stop drinking because drinking and f***ing isn't such a great plan when it comes to having a wife and a family. So I think it's my subconscious saying, dude, I'm just going to give you headaches while you're pissed. <laughs> right? And so I thank my subconscious every day. And then was it, was it a shock when you had to do the latter sober? No. <laughs> no. 
<laughs> no, it's an extraordinary thing, sex, isn't it, Nigel? <laughs> um, one thinks that, you know, yeah, I, I'm yet to find a set of circumstances where it's disappointing. <laughs> Okay, now we're moving on to your second choice. Ooh. And, and you have, uh, if I can pick up your bad language, f***ed with the format because you haven't chosen a book. You actors, you won't follow a brief. Oh. But I'm, I'm going to let you get away with it Thanks. because you've chosen a play, yeah. but it's a play that you've never seen, you've only read. That's right. Now, can, can I just, uh, the people who are listening to this, they need to know the quality of the play that you are uh, going to be talking about. Yeah. It was written in 1881 mm-hmm. and the... I got a number of reviews at the time that it was um, released. This is from the London Times, from yeah. the theatre critic of the, the time, the best theatre critic. Positively abominable, an open drain, a loathsome sore unbandaged, gross putrid indecorum, literary carry-on, crapulous stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So it didn't go down well to start with because it's about religion, venereal disease, incest and euthanasia, ghosts by Henrik Ibsen. Yeah, that's Tell right. me was about that, it. Was that review written in Victorian England? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah. At the um, time, it was very scandalous because it was about those things. Yeah. So I stand by my position. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Ghosts by Henry Gibson. I'm going to tell you a story. And the first part of it won't make me look great. Uh, basically, and this is part of an ongoing uh, thing I've been thinking about lately, which is um, forums in which to tell stories, forums in which to acknowledge one's growth, um, forums in which we can acknowledge that we aren't born perfect and we're constantly striving to find some something. So I, I offer this story up. Thank you. In that spirit. I was, again, an undergraduate. I was living at university. I was living at college um, and it was a victory dinner, big celebration. We won some sporting event. It was possibly the swimming uh, we'd won. I was on the team because I was a, I was the high diver, uh, for the team. Not because I was any good. I was the only bloke at college that liked jumping off high things. Um, <laughs> well, I think we can assume that, uh, I didn't contribute to any of the points that my team accrued during the meet. Nevertheless, we were <laughs> celebrating as one. Uh, and later in the evening, a young, uh, woman from the college, uh, tapped me on the shoulder and said, um, how, how, how about you and I go and explore the wonders of our nethers um, in, a, in a private location, which I did. You know, this is terrific fun, great fun. So off I went and, you know, 19-year-old, excited and happy and making sweet, sweet love, uh, which was terrific, but it wasn't my girlfriend. So this was a time in my life where I had a girlfriend for the first time. She'd been away for all of a day. She was going away for the whole weekend, so you can understand how lonely I got, Nigel. She'd gone away for the whole weekend. I really liked this girl, this girl, but then I had this offer on the table over here and I took it. And, of course, I've woken up and I just felt sick and it was terrible and I'd done the wrong thing and I knew I'd done the wrong thing and I felt bad and I felt horrible and I thought I have, and oh, and, and I hadn't, uh, worn a condom. So there was all sorts of terrible ramifications and risks sort of playing out in my head. And I've gone, oh my God, this is just, this is terrible, terrible. And I really like my girlfriend, but I've really f- this up. 
and I can't let her know and I certainly can't let her get, uh, if I was to get her some sort of disease because of the thing, but I can't, I can't have sex with my girlfriend. She's coming back tomorrow and I go, oh, my God, I've got to make sure that I don't have any diseases. So I race up to the cross at the time and I was really worried because at that point to discover whether you had a nonspecific urethritis or any kind of thing, they had to gouge basically. Yeah. They put a thing down the eye of your body. Like, terrible. And I go up there and I walk into the doctor and I'm a panicked white mess and I look at the person and I tell them what I've done. I confess. <laughs> I've done this. I've been a terrible boyfriend. Go, I'm a doctor, not a, a priest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And the doctor looked at me and with a sense of joy, told me that there was no way they could get any results for three weeks. So you're going to have to sit in your misery for at least that long and sent me out the door. And so I left there and I've gone, oh my God, I can't even get a test for three weeks. How am I going to not have sex with my girlfriend? So then I'm going home, excuse after issue. I tell her that, I got this, I got that. I'm going through thousands running around in my head. I got this, I get that. I get back to my room that day and I've gone, oh my God, and I'm trying to think. And then suddenly... I stop. You see, for the last two weeks, I'd been writing an essay on Henrik Ibsen's ghosts. And by God, as a passionate literary uh, student, I was writing that essay with every fibre of my being, you know, the kind of painful, nauseating undergraduate passion that comes with an English literature student. And I was belting out this essay, Henrik Ibsen, he knew what was going on because ghosts at the very heart of it is an infidelity that's not been spoken truthfully about and then as a result towards the end, spoiler alert, it ends up with the potentiality of incest because the offspring don't know that they're related to them and they may find love in one another's arms as well as a mother potentially having to euthanise her syphilitic and syphilitic son. And as a student I knew and I wrote in that essay that if we tell lies about the things we do, there is no end to the misery it can cause tomorrow, the next day, the year after that, and for generations to come. So I sat in that bedroom and I suddenly realised this guy who wrote this play 100 plus years ago had a message for me. And it was the very, very first time that a piece of literature, a story entered into my life, into my body, into my heart, and changed the direction of my action, which was when my girlfriend got back that weekend, she walked into my room and I looked at her and I broke down like the pathetic grub I was. And I said, this is what I have done. And I am sorry. Now, I'm not suggesting for an instant that I've got everything right since then. I'm not suggesting for a second that I've lived a, you know, a life where there hasn't been you know, various indiscretions, whatever it is since then, I'm certainly no, you know, extraordinary role model of behavior. But to me, that play represents, we can choose to engage in these questions, whether they be moral, ethical, whatever, or not. And that play was the thing that made it very real for me, that literature makes life less lonely because we can witness our failures, our failings, our vulnerabilities, as well as our great strengths through reading stories of others. That has to be one of the dead set best stories on Five My Life I've ever heard. And it sums up what this podcast is about. So thank you, mate, for taking it so seriously and preparing. I have to ask you, 
how did it play out? Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> she well, went, that's all right, got Rob. Oh, you got it. <laughs> well, of course. This extraordinary woman. Now, we're friends to this day. Ah, okay. We're friends to this day. What I learned as that played out, of course, there was misery and heartache and, you know, the kind of sadness that only two 19-year-olds <laughs> can produce. <laughs> but she forgave me in a way that I didn't credit at the time. And by that I mean she never once used it against me. Did she stay with you? Yep. Yep. We had our ups and downs, but she stayed with me and we broke up many years later. She never once used it against me. Not even passively. Not even, well, you did this for her. Yeah. Uh, And to this day... I don't know if I could do the same. Yeah. You know, you'd want to think you could. Uh, you know, and obviously, you know, with another girlfriend, I got cheated on and, oh, my God, oh, oh, yeah. oh, oh, oh. How dare you? <laughs> but I then tried to use my girlfriend's behaviour as a model for my own. Right. And it was like, right, well, if we're going to press on it and I want to stay with you in this situation, well, I've got to find actual forgiveness. Anyway, that was the first time I guess I witnessed actual forgiveness yeah. from someone rather than just lip service and a whole lot of passive aggressive behavior. So, but, but, but what an amazing story that a play, book, whatever could have uh, an impact on how not so much you behaved, but your honesty in recounting that behavior to people that you love. I mean, it's amazing. So from then on, you were sort of transparent. You didn't try and at that point, keep, yeah, keep yeah. things under the carpet. Very and... much so, very much so. And it was, um, and to be true, you know, I think that moment has governed, I mean, I think you know I'm an ambassador for the Dimmick's Children's Charities. We raise money for kids that can't afford their own books. Uh, I'm, pa- my, my, I'm passionate about sharing stories and I'm passionate about literature. The one thing all young actors do when they come up to me and say, Rob, how can I be a young actor? I say two things. One, because they go, oh, I'll get an agent, do this. No, 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 don't worry about that. I want you to think about two things. Are you engaged with your community theatre group or Australian Theatre for Young People or, you know, get a sense of theatre, get it, because then you'll discover whether you love examining text. And other than that, are you reading much? Right. Are you reading novel? You've just read, read, read widely. Um, because, yeah, I still, and, and, and I have no doubt it was because of that tawdry, tawdry incident. <laughs> All those ah, years ah, ago. Shame on you. <laughs> well, we're going to come to our third choice, your third choice, not mine. Now, the third choice, it, there is a Five of My Life uh, Spotify playlist oh, where yeah. everybody's uh, songs are on it, so you can right. go and have, you can have it on, on shuffle in your car. Um, and you, my man, uh, have chosen the second classical piece of music that is going to go on to it. Mm-hmm. You have chosen the second longest piece of music that is going to go on to it. And there's a, there's a weird coincidence. because What was the longest? Patrick Hernandez's I Was Born to Be Alive? It was James <laughs> Valentine's Jethro Tull, Thick as a Brick. Ah, there you oh, go. my, it never ends. <laughs> uh, um, so, so uh, But there's a, there's a bit of a link here between your second and third because Ibsen, mm. uh, Norwegian, wrote Ghosts in 1881 in yeah. Danish yeah. and George Meredith in mm. 1881 wrote a poem called The Lark's Ascending. Mm-hmm. So same year, mate. 1881 has a... I was unaware of that, mate. There you go. There we go. Uh, and uh, unaware that with everyone and I was true. Away. Everyone walks away with something. <laughs> <laughs> and then in 1914, at the start of the First World War, mm. Vaughan Williams mm. turned it into the most amazing piece of music that will be playing when we enter the gates of heaven. Mm. The Lark Ascending. Yeah. Tell me your story behind that. 
It is a beautiful piece of music. Um, my connection to it is through the year my voice broke. So as a 15-year-old actor, uh, I was in the year my voice broke. Uh, for those listeners that don't know the film, it stars uh, Noah Taylor, Loeen Carmen, and Ben Mendelsohn, and it's an extraordinarily beautiful coming-of-age film. Teenagers in the southern highlands of New South Wales, outcasts growing up, finding themselves, finding each other. Now, my experience of making the film, directed by John Digan, was as joyous as anything I can remember. It was this time of real freedom. I was 15. We went down to lived in Braidwood for a week or two. There are other actors. We were filming. I was doing this joyous thing. Um, I met Noah Taylor down there, who, of course, has gone on to become one of our best actors. Um, Loeen Carmen, who I'm still close friends with, um, goes on to become a country western singer. And, of course, Ben Mendelsohn needs no introduction and was just as electric back then as he is today. So we were down there filming this film. It was terrific fun. And then the film came out and it was beautiful. And that piece of music captures this sense of joyous wonder, a fragility and we talked earlier about those other things, uh, was it terror and excitement, but this adolescent sense of yearning. I strongly believe that the imagined trajectory of our lives is built in the bodies of our 15-year-old selves, the dreams that are coursing through our bodies when we are 15. And, of course, life is a daily sadness after that. Who can realise the dreams of a 15-year-old? Each day we wake up and reach for what our 15-year-old dreamed of being, and we aren't that. But, of course, the 15-year-old doesn't know so much about life, doesn't know the power of loyalty and of family and of consistency. Never-ending domestic tedium and heart-rending compromises. Don't quote me. That's exactly <laughs> right. We don't know those things. And, of course, the pain and the joy that those things can bring. And so when I watched this film, of course, it was made in one way and then this film and John Digan, together with his team, put together this extraordinary offering that captured that sense of sweet, sweet hope and kindness that I think is in the heart of every human and it can go one way or the other. It captures this beautiful fragility and strength that is housed in the adolescent body. And to me, that piece of music is, uh, carries all of that with it. We can either lift off or we can, or fall to the ground sadly. Yeah. Well, it, it, I'm so Glad that you have chosen it, and it's a delight to add it to the playlist, mate. So it's it's a very eclectic playlist because you I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. We, we, we had um, uh, Commando Steve Willis on, who chose Parkway Drive, which yep. is which is metal thrash. Mm. So if you put it on shuffle, you're going to get metal thrash. Yeah. And then the lark ascending. So, well, uh, I, my other choice was going to be the Ramones, Sheena is a punk rocker. Oh, Sheena <laughs> is a punk rocker, Sheena is, oh, I love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> and what was the story behind that? Did you know a Sheena? <laughs> no, 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 no. That was more of a tale about a desperate man travelling around the world trying to get to see the Ramones. Ah, and did, you, did, did, did it work? Finally. Yeah. I saw the Ramones. And did they disappoint? Or did no, they... no, 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 no. But I was a, I cracked my head open three days before on a pool 
Um, and so wasn't able to kind of um, crowd surf and, and in the mosh pit in the mosh pit as much as I would like. But I got to see the Ramones. I, I'd missed all of their things, and then they played an unannounced gig down at the DY venue under a different name. Uh, and a friend of a friend was the drummer in the support band. So I found out the Ramones were on and got down there. And finally, after trying in three different continents. Now, we are going to come on to the fourth choice on Five of My Life, and you have chosen the Manning Bar at Sydney University. Tell me about it, mate. <laughs> well, I think we should start the story earlier this year. The Manning Bar from Sydney University is now closed during the day. Right. Um, because there aren't enough students that are going there during the day. It's not profitable. So, you know, it's still available in the evenings or to book. But this great gathering place um, that's been a gathering place at the university for decades and decades and decades is now no longer, which to me is a great shame and part of a bigger conversation around um, higher education and around university education and, and what it's there for. Perhaps a conversation for another day. Um, to me, the Manning Bar will always be the most wonderful of places. I did an arts degree at University of Sydney, uh, but I got to know Manning Bar by learning theatre sports. So I was learning theatre sports during... Now, mate, I've I, I got to say, time out there, Roberto. Mm -hmm. What the hell is a theatre sport? Theatre sports? So it's improvised comedy. Ah, um, okay. So you basically play in teams, you get a suggestion from the audience, what's your favourite colour, where's a great place to go on holiday, and then you'll play out a scene. You might make it an opera, you might do it in the style of... Um, a television sitcom, uh, you might do it as a spacer. There's all these different sorts of games. But basically the idea is, if I can remember the quote from the great Canadian that started it, a brilliant mind in panic is a wonderful <laughs> thing to see. It sounds fantastic. So, How do you score? Does the audience yeah, boom, boom and cheer? No, no, there's three judges. Right. They score you out of five. Um, and the scoring, if you're all sensible about it, basically it shouldn't matter. Right. Um, but of course, you know, you put humans anywhere near a number and it starts to matter. <laughs> so I learned my, I learned my trade there at Sydney university and it was an amazing time with amazing, uh, other people. And so I met this extraordinary cross, uh, section of the most amazing people and the most amazing minds. What I loved about that is that you got people from the arts, you got engineers, you got doctors, you got all the different disciplines coming together and playing together. And to me, that is the rich texture and tapestry of a university, is this amazing cross-pollination of styles and thoughts and ways of thinking. And I truly believe it's only through all of these different minds coming together, whether it's at the bar during the day or at night, or having rambling conversations over the weekends, that is the only way we're going to solve the big problems of the day. It's not through isolating certain sciences or maths or STEM or, or the arts over here, keeping them in their different places. It's about how these things come together. And not keeping people from different sides of any uh, issue apart. It's, the world is going mad. It needs people. The, the more you disagree, the more you should be cross-pollinating. 
absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And so that's why I look back on that time and, and I, then, I then went on to uh, teach theatre sports at university and then I hosted, um, I hosted everything at Manning Bar for years and years and years and I'm sure there's a thousand people out there now that's going, I remember that and God, I wish they'd got someone else. But <laughs> I was an undergrad looking for money uh, and so you could get paid for these things as well. And I certainly, you know, helped finance my way through uh, my undergrad degree and a few years thereafter because I wasn't above loitering. Now, the final part about that, and this is something that I'll remember fondly and with a great sadness. Uh, so 9-11, I wake up that morning. Uh, by then I'd moved up to the central coast and I look at the newspaper and it's all over the thing and we're involved in one of the great tragedies of our age. I had to drive down to Sydney University that day because that night I was hosting the grand final of Sydney University Theatre Sports. Now, to give you a sense of what theatre sports was like, um, Manning Bar, Thursday lunchtime, you could not get a seat. It was standing room only and it was worse than that. People were jammed up against the walls. There's hundreds and hundreds of people all in there to watch these amazingly fun, wacky, strange people. Uh, playing out this improvised comedy. And it all culminated, of course, at the end of the season with all of the teams and they'd gone through all the competition to the final. And it was an exciting time and everyone loved it. It was a really great thing. And, of course, we wake up that morning and no one feels they have the right to be funny. No one feels they have the right to celebrate. And it was des- – and as the host, I'm thinking, do we call it off? I mean, I don't know whether you – the feeling around the world at that point was just incomprehension. But then I remembered what it was that Manning Bar offered people for decades. It was a place where people could go to be with others when they're afraid, when they didn't know which way forward. During Vietnam and the protests, Manning Bar had this extraordinary history of bringing people together and being a safe place. And so we all gathered, we decided to put the show on. And it was a very sombre beginning to the show, very different to the lights and the woohoo and the dancing and the crazy, you know, music. But we opened with that speech. Friends, welcome. Welcome to this building. We come from all parts of uh, New South Wales, around the world, around the country. And we're all in this together and we feel desperately sad for what's occurred. But that's what this building's for, for us to come together. So with a little bit more massaging and a couple of other thoughts, we were able to celebrate and be the young, joyous creatures that we were, even in the face of this horrible adversity. We didn't need to stop, but we certainly needed to recognise it and embrace it before we could move forward on it. Now, we are going to come on to the fifth choice, which usually is my favourite, but you've been pulling out diamonds here. So how can you entertain us by talking about your possession on Five My Life, which is just a stick? Oh, It just says here, a stick. So take it away, Carlton. Okay. I own a stick. And it, if my house was on fire, I guess it's this old hypothetical, what would you save? The stick. Well, because it would obviously... It's combustible, so I didn't want my house to burn more. It's a stick. Twelve months before I was born, my mum and my dad and my two older sisters were huddled on a beach in New Zealand and it was cold and it was wet 
and my mum picked up a stick. Because my older brother had died that day, eight weeks old, of cot death. And my mum picked up a stick and she held it. And I grew up with that stick in the house. We used that stick to stir our curries with. My dad was an extraordinary cook. And for many, many years, all I knew was the, the, the stick that cooked the, the curries with. It's about a foot long, beautiful piece of driftwood, soft to touch, lovely, interesting shape. Uh, stir the curries. And at some point, I can't remember the moment when, but I learned about the story as to how our family came by that stick. Then, um, as sensible parents do when they reach a certain age, they start to divest themselves of their belongings uh, and they give these things away. Uh, my mum and dad gave uh, the stick to me. So I now own that stick. And then as I grew up, it was in my kitchen and then my boys were born and then I told my story of, uh, to the boys as to how that stick comes to be in my life. And my boys, young and funny and interesting, they gave it a name. It had never had a name before and they called it the Stick of Richard Life. Oh, Richard being your Richard deceased, being brother, deceased yeah. brother. The Stick of Richard Life. That's the name of the stick. Then my father passed away in 2015, Christmas Eve. He died. Very difficult. Now, on Christmas Day, my son was stirring the ice cream with the new ice cream maker that he had. And obviously, it's a devastatingly sad day. All my family was up at my house and my son had got the stick of Richard Life and was stirring the ice cream the day after my dad died and the stick broke in half. <gasps> and the stick broke in half as my mother was walking past my son. And my son knew what this stick was to me and to my mum, 20 times that. And he looked up with these big wide eyes, not knowing what to do. And my mum responded in a way that captures the essence of that woman without skipping a beat. She said, oh, well, darling, not to worry. It's a very old stick. Maybe just keep the two halves and perhaps put it somewhere where we won't lose it. <laughs> because that's my mum. Oh. My mum, her greatest gift to me, and I don't know how she did this, Nigel. I was born 12 months after Richard died. I have only ever been shown a world that would be kind to me, would be generous to me if I was kind to it. I was brought up with no sense that my life could finish quick. I was brought up with no sense that there was danger around every corner. And yet every single time I went to sleep must have been the most desperately sad time and worrying time for my mum and dad. My, my brother died of cot death. He simply went down for his afternoon nap and never woke up. So this stick had that moment. And then the final part of a story I'll tell, this stick brought out the most extraordinary thing. I then um, was down, I, I'd written a, a little story about my stick 
and I'd shared it with my family. I was desperately worried because it was a personal story and it was a family story and I didn't know. And this was in the months after. Um, no, this was, sorry, this was bef just before my dad had died. And I was down in Melbourne and I was talking to um, my sister about this story and about this stick and about the day that Richard died. And, and I still remember at that point family law was – Mum, my, my sister's memory of my mother running down a garden path yelling, he's dead, he's dead. And it still breaks my heart when I think of my mum in that situation. And my older sister looked at me and she said, Rob, that's not my most compelling memory of the day. I said, what is? And she said, it was dad. Dad banging on the roof of an ambulance as that ambulance drove away. And of course, back in the day, they never saw the boy again. There was no burial for a kid that was eight weeks old. There was a, he just went. And that was my sister's memory of it. And she told me that in the foyer down at the uh, theatre in Melbourne. We just, for some strange reason, we were at the theatre together that night. We hadn't organised it. And after the show, we were in the foyer and she told me that story. When she told me that moment of my dad banging on the ambulance, which I'd never heard before, I literally howled immediately and collapsed on the ground and was inconsolable. Now, I've got a couple of theories as to why I responded the way I did. For some reason, I think it's like a genetic memory, that sense of this extraordinary pain that my father felt. And then over the ensuing weeks, I felt this growing guilt that I'd never acknowledged my father's pain in losing his son. Because our family narrative has always been it was so much harder for your mother. That was dad's position. It was so much harder for your mother. And I only never knew about my mum running down the garden path yelling he's gone. I didn't know about that. And I thought, God, I've dishonoured my father and I've dishonoured his experience. I haven't acknowledged what he had when he lost a child. And, of course, you only know that when you have kids of your, of your own, imagining that. And so I was lucky enough to bring this up with my dad a little while later, because he'd read that story I was talking about. He called me up to say, I love that story. And I said, Dad, thanks so very much. I said, but I might just say, I want to acknowledge, I don't think I've ever really acknowledged your pain at losing a son. We've never had that conversation. And without skipping a beat and without a sense that he was pushing stuff under a carpet, he went straight back to it. He said, of course, it was difficult. He says, but it was so much worse for your mum. You know, back in that, I was working so hard and she carried that child for nine weeks and it was, it was really... Now, this gets me to the point of that. He told himself that. He told himself what he needed to tell himself to get through that time. He needed to be a person that was solid and strong so that those around him could fall apart and grieve and not know whether they wanted to wake up the next day. He had to say it's worse for that person and that person and that person so that part of a family dynamic as his role as a father. I do think he sublimated his own feelings so that the team could get through it. And of course, at that point, I didn't push him further. I acknowledged and honoured his story that he told himself. But I also have no doubt, feeling what I felt that day when I heard that story, that his grief and his anguish was as potent as anything you could imagine but he needed to tell himself a story to get others through it as well. And that's why 
that stick I had repaired. Oh, it's, it's now the And it now doesn't sit down in the kitchen where it might get broken again. It's no it's, longer a utensil. It sits up on my desk where I see it every day. Oh, wonderful, mate. Wonderful. And tears in your eyes when you were telling that. It's just a beautiful story. Um, gosh, it feels uh, an inappropriate ending to go to my sixth question. But maybe you can top even that. Who knows? It's a surprise sixth question. Oh, there you go. Um, mate, who would you like to hear on Five of My Life next? Oh, God. That is a surprise question. I'd say Nakia Louie. Ah, that, that's one of our other guests has, has mentioned her. Is that right? I'm not surprised. And, and why, why have you? Um, so Nakia is um, uh, one of our extraordinary young writers. Um, she's an actor. She's seriously funny. Uh, and I admire her capacity to bring nuance and thought to public debate. Now, the things that she's asked to talk about are really difficult. Um, they're charged subjects um, and they're very personal subjects for her in virtue of um, who she is. Uh, and I admire her capacity to bring nuance and vulnerability uh, and to recognise multiple positions and the difficult nature um, of the topics that she talks about. Uh, and I think she's a really interesting, uh, an interesting voice that can bring that notion of an artistic understanding, that being not binary, to complex conversations uh, with compassion and compassion for her listener at the same time as being ruthlessly intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> Rob Carlton, thank you for that suggestion. But, but more importantly, mate, thank you for treating the format in the way that we want it to be treated and coming in and being your authentic, charming, funny, moving self. Rob Carton, thank you very much. Thanks, Nigel. The Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicklish. For more episodes, search The Five of My Life podcast. Go to podcast1australia.com.au or download the Podcast One Australia app.